This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. In my normal life, I talk about the edge. Edge compute, edge networking, smart devices, you know, the edge. When Professor Steve Beckwith talks about the edge, he's considering the universe. Professor Beckwith joins me this week for an incredible conversation on how AI and machine learning through tools like the Web and Hubble telescopes are informing us about the universe and all the gory, catastrophic, beautiful, and fascinating stories it has to tell us. It informs the world we live in today, the potential impact of technology as it's evolving, and Professor Beckwith should know. He is currently the director of the Space Sciences Laboratory at Berkeley and has previously served as the director of many other similar institutions here in the States and internationally, including as the vice president for research and graduate studies for the 10-campus University of California system. So please, my friends, enjoy this conversation with Professor Steve Beckwith. The most valuable commodity on Earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. But Steve is what everybody calls me, and that's what you should call me. Well, Steve, that's what I'm going to call you. I, I think that's a great intro to the show. Welcome to the QTS Experience. Well, what's on your mind, David? Well, there's, oof, that's an open-ended question. Let's not go too far down that path. Um, but I do, I do want to start with this idea of, um, first of all, thank you again for coming on the show. As I was preparing for our conversation, uh, I, my father's worked on the space station for, I don't know, a little over a decade. He worked on shuttle for almost since the inception for 25 years, 28 years. I forget what the exact number is. We've been around the the industry for a long time. And so I've always been fascinated with the things that we get from space, the technology, the images, the the people that want to go explore, you know, that, that, that do this. And one of the things that I love the most, I remember being in his office and he had some early pictures of Hubble and it just brought the universe to most of us who do not work in the field of astronomy or in anywhere near this, to us, into our laps in a way that really was pretty remarkable. I don't, I don't care who you are, when you, when you were confronted with some of these uh, images, some of the early days of just seeing the universe in a whole new way, either existing um, celestial bodies that we've seen before, but now with new color, new data, new clarity, or things that we'd never seen before. As, we, as we're today, we're going to talk a lot about web, but either of these instruments, what, can you start off with what was the breakthrough with Hubble to conventional um, universe gazing? And then maybe we can, we can segue from there into web and what's the differences, what are the similarities? But can we start with Hubble just from a big idea? How is it working so, and what's it gathering for us? So the big idea with Hubble is the breakthrough was it was above the atmosphere of the earth. Hmm. So it was in space and anything above, I mean, it was in low earth orbit, which turned out to be a little inconvenient, but hmm. anything from that up to, you know, deep space uh, was, is good for the mm -hmm. telescope. And the reason that was a breakthrough with Hubble 
is because observing through the Earth's atmosphere is just a little bit like trying to do optical astronomy in the daytime. You know, you can see the moon, you can see a full moon in the daytime. That's not a problem. But you can't even see the brightest stars in the sky. You can't even see the planets. You can't see Venus once the sun is up, even though if it's, say, the morning star just before dawn, Mm-hmm. it's just incredibly bright. It looks like an airplane. And, mm-hmm. and I've often been with my wife and she asked me, she says, is that an airplane? Or I said, well, you know, it's not moving. Right. Pretty far away. Probably <laughs> and so the, once the sun comes up, you know, the atmosphere just completely blots out any of the light coming in. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, it's much better at night. And mm-hmm. if you've ever gone to a really dark site, you know, up in the mountains somewhere in the Rocky Mountains where I am or mm-hmm. down in Texas, it turns out it's very dark in some of the southern uh, mountains of Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, the sky looks spectacular, mm-hmm. uh, but the stars are almost always twinkling and they're twinkling because the atmosphere is still moving over you and it's still distorting that starlight. And it still actually absorbs some of the starlight as it comes through. So there are many wavelengths that we actually can't see because the atmosphere just blocks them. Mm-hmm. We don't know this from our eyes. Our eyes are attuned, really. I mean, we've evolved as creatures so that we're we're good only with the wavelengths that transmit the sun. But but there are plenty of wavelengths we're interested in that, that it doesn't transmit. So the atmosphere is just, you know, it's like trying to observe in a blanket. And putting a telescope above the atmosphere was just absolutely revolutionary. And, and the scientists, you know, astronomers realized this early on. Uh, the first paper on the possibility of doing this was written in, I think, 1946, just after World War II by Lyman Spitzer, who said, you know, if we could put one of these big telescopes in space, it would be revolutionary. Mm. And, you know, it took another 50 years, roughly, to do mm-hmm. it. Uh, but that was, that was the, big, the big change. Mm-hmm. Now, if I can just go on a little bit, let me elaborate on why I think this is so impressive to people like you i mean it's impressive to all it's impressive to astronomers but why is it sort of captivated the public in a way that other things have not and i think one reason is that once again as creatures we've kind of evolved uh we get a lot of information visually and it's it's visual information not in the form of graphs which you have to be trained to understand or charts Mm -hmm. or you know it's it's actually just pictures Mm -hmm. so we're pretty good at looking at a picture and very quickly getting a lot of stuff out of it Mm -hmm. even if you're not trained you you know when you see a picture a lot of detail that that is contrast just comes out at you very quickly and so what the people at the space telescope science institute did and we i was there for a while as the director in the in the um 2000s, early 2000s, what our people did was they worked very hard to make sure that the images coming down were first of all cleaned up and put in a color format because you know the, the data doesn't come down as color, it's just monochrome and different filters, so you have to assemble it. And, and to create pictures which were both visually appealing but also had a tremendous amount of information content that was pretty easy to figure out if someone just pointed it out. And so all of a sudden, things which were often deep in the esoteric realm of astrophysics or, you know, deep science became pretty easy for for, for someone without any training in astronomy, but some mild interest in the cosmos to figure out with a capture. Mm 
So if you look at the captions of the picture, it will say, you know, for example, the Eagle Nebula, one of these famous things, the so-called right. pillars of creation. I mean, it really just looks like, I mean, this smoky sort of a thing, you can see it. And then the caption says, well, actually this is a dark cloud. And the reason it looks like this is because stars, nearby stars that have very powerful short wavelength light have eaten away at it. And they've eaten out cavities, except for the stuff which is very dusty. And the dust kind of absorbs the starlight and doesn't allow mm -hmm. it to eat away. And you can see that. And it says, in, of course, in these dusty regions are where little mm -hmm. stars form. And then you see a little few red dots. And they say these are stars being formed. Everybody gets it. You know, you mm -hmm. don't have to explain it. And so I think the revolution was to recognize that you get rid of the atmosphere. And with modern instruments, good glass, all of that. You can just make the cosmos stunningly available to ordinary people. It, a comment and then a question. It reminds me, as you're describing that, I remember, um, I'm pretty sure it was Time Life, but whatever magazine it was, there was a, um, I think it was Afghanistan in the 80s, big humanitarian crisis is there. There is every so many years. And instead of trying to walk through, um, have a, a list of bullet points on why we should pay attention to this article, here's the crisis for children, here's the et cetera, et cetera, whatever the, the chart or the data was, it was a picture of these two uh, bright blue-eyed, uh, dark-skinned children in a, in a head covering just looking at the camera in sorrow. Yeah, there's a very famous one of a young woman. And now she's sort of in her 40s. And yeah. they revisited it. I don't know if you've seen this, but very famous picture of this uh, young woman. I, I think she was only about 12 years old at the time. Right. It, yeah. it is that picture. I, what's going on here? Like, it, and the way that it, it could, uh, in human beings, we respond. I think it's a, you know, our reptile brains, it is a evolved response to. If the photographer, that's why we pay photographers well, if they are able to capture the emotion yes. uh, and that and the the, the surrounding thing, it, it, we, there's almost no defense. It slips past our cynicism. It slips right. right in there before you have an opportunity. And that was my experience when I saw some of these early pictures of, I wasn't particularly, you know, I've been to the shuttle simulator back in the day. I've got to meet a lot of the astronauts. My dad was there at Mission Control. And now I wish I could go back to that 17-year-old kid and say, are you kidding me? This was amazing. What are you doing? But at the time, I was like, you know, I think freaking Dr. Crippen parked his Porsche in the wrong spot. We can't get into, you know, whatever it was. But you, you, those images cut through all of that, and it was um, it's remarkable. Yeah, you know, the, the, of course, the, the, if you assemble pictures of things, generally people are much more interested in other people than they are in sort of scenes. So right. if you go on a vacation, you take a whole bunch of pictures of like the beach and the ocean and the mountains. I mean, a picture is not the same as being there, but then you take a picture of your family or even other tourists or other people. Right. And people are very interested in that. Those are the ones that are kind of keepers. So so the 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 letters that appeal to you to donate of other people are are going to be sort of highest in priority in our brains. And the universe does not have any particular emotions. And to the extent that it stimulates emotions in us, it's because it's a kind of a wonder that, that as far as we know, we're a species that kind of 
excels at that. Yeah. The um, some of the things that Hubble can teach us, and I I used these pictures a lot when I I used to give a lot of public lectures, and I'd always use these pictures. Is there are some very kind of esoteric concepts and physical theories that people have heard of and they all know, but they're just like, it's too complicated. So one mm -hmm. is the general theory of Einstein's general theory of relativity. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you, if you look at the theory in its full mathematical glory, it is hard. I mean, you know, it's, you know somewhere I, I'm, you know, I like all of my, you know, counterparts in, in astrophysics, I'm pretty good at mathematics. Right. Nevertheless, right. to understand what that means requires a lot of deep study of very high level mathematics just to get a sense of it. So, you know, most people are going to be put off. They've heard of it. Yeah, it's kind of neat, but, you know, they're never going to understand it. Right. But the thing is that general relativity makes a few predictions, which you can actually see in pictures. And one of the most profound is that the whole idea of general relativity is that space time, that is time and, you know, our coordinates of where things are, is sort of like a, a, a stretchable, it's not a fabric because it's three dimensional, it's four dimensional actually, if you include time, but but it's it's stretchable, it's, it's mutable and it can change. And of course that's true for the universe. That's the universal expansion is simply space time expanding at a un, almost uniform rate for a long time. But it also says that if you have a lot of mass in a, in some place, a lot of mass, that that mass will distort the space time and it acts as a sort of a lens. So for objects behind it, if you, you see the objects coming through, if it's a strong enough lens, it's distorted, just as if you look through someone's very thick glasses or you look through like a crystal ball or a globe, you know, if you look through it, it's very distorted. Mm -hmm. And now we can take pictures. Uh, we've been able to do this for a long time with Hubble of clusters of galaxies, which are just sort of the most massive objects we know in the universe. And a nearby cluster of galaxies will create images of the distant galaxies behind it that are all distorted. And it looks like you're just looking through a fishbowl. And you can just show it to people and say, well, this, the prediction of curved space-time or, or uh, stretchable space-time, that's how you prove it. <laughs> you take this picture and you say, wow, I'm looking through like a lens but there's no big piece of glass out in space. And it's, it's remarkable how much that sort of brings the whole sense, the whole concept all of a sudden to people, and they can sort of understand that without having to go through any mathematics or any other fancy stuff. And then I almost always mention that, you know, the whole GPS system, the whole GPS satellite system would not function unless we were able to accurately correct for the distortions in space-time of the Earth's gravity. In fact, the distortions in space-time are the biggest distortions <laughs> that the GPS system experiences. So every day, they've got to be calculating in real time changes in the apparent positions and the apparent times. It's mostly, GPS is mostly based on, on time due to the general relativistic effects of Earth's gravity. And, you know, people aren't kind of aware of this. And, you know, it's not, you'd think, well, okay, this is kind of neat. And yeah, maybe it happens out there, but how does it affect me? Well, it affects you because if we didn't make those calculations, you could never get in your car and dial up a route and get to where you want to go. Because by the time you were halfway through, all the satellites had changed by a huge amount and you'd be in the wrong direction. 
Rand McNally's probably shaking their fists right now. That space time, what the heck, put us out of business. No, I, no, no, no. It just forces them to employ people like me to make their <laughs> maps more accurate. <laughs> Look, I can tell you many. Oh, they're, I, they're I don't want to confess how many times as a kid leaving L.A., in the early 80s to come to Georgia to join an airborne infantry unit, how many times I had that giant, you know, the size of a billboard book open in my lap, not while moving. I'm sure I was not moving in my 1984 Chevy Chevette, driving cross country, trying to figure out what's my exit. And, you know, my children have absolutely no concept oh, it's of what a I'm luster. talking about. It's yeah. a luster. I, I, I'm sure my daughter, because she's very technically savvy, can can take care of all that. But I'm not so sure my son, who's more of an artist, <laughs> I'm not sure how he would do reading um, the maps. and getting. You know what, the artists are bold. My wife's half Japanese and half Irish. She's very much an artist. And, wow. um, that you know, they're just kind of like, well, we'll figure it out. I, I am also a figure it out in a lot of ways, but the, the logical, especially as I get older, the sort of the logical system by system, I want to make sure that I got the framework built. And back then when I was a kid, it was, you know, look, there's a coast on this side. The sun rises that way. Even numbers are east-west. Odd numbers are north-south. We'll figure it out. Um, you be a sailor. We should, yeah, well, probably not a successful Vast sailor. expanse of the ocean, completely <laughs> featureless, and it's really the stars and the sun that you have to use. I am to willing whatever. to jump out of airplanes, but I'm not that interested in sailing outside the side of land, certainly not when I'm in charge. So uh, probably not a good idea. Well, here, I guess... As you're talking about this, I mean, we could go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay on point because I'm gonna, I would run down. Maybe someday I could persuade you to come back on and talk about theory of relativity. I, I, I want to come back to this first sort of thing though. Is the mission before we get into the technolo technological maybe differences between them? What's the same? What's different? Is the mission of the two telescopes the same, uh, or are you mean they the different? Hubble Space Telescope and the yeah. James? Well, yes, sir. Yeah. Um, yes, they're approximately the same. Um, okay. Now, both of them are general purpose observatories. So it's a little bit like buying a pair of binoculars. Maybe you mm -hmm. bought them because you're a bird watcher, but they can also be used for lots of things like, sure. you know, watching enemy soldiers come over a distant hill or spotting airplanes or, you know, whatever you like to look at. Right. And um, astronomy is a very rich and vast field. And so when you put, when you construct a general purpose observatory, you usually equip it with lots of different ways of looking at the universe. So people can, can pick and choose depending on the scientific problem they're interested in. Mm -hmm. But um, in, in general, and this is mostly a political consideration, it's difficult to get a lot of money to build something unless you can identify a specific goal or problem it will solve. Right. And in the case of Hubble, I, I, I once made this calculation, and I think at the time I made it, which is probably 15 or 20 years ago, we had spent roughly $15 billion with the servicing missions and everything else. So it was a pretty expensive. James yeah. Webb uh, is $10 billion, and that's a lifetime cost. So that's not expected to go up unless it lives for a long time and they operate a little longer, but it won't go up mm -hmm. by much. So these are very expensive. And, you know, the federal government has deep pockets. Nevertheless, you need to be able to make a strong case that it's worth spending taxpayer money to do something. And so, so both of the telescopes were predicated on, on addressing specific problems in addition to being general purpose observatories. Now, in the case of the Hubble, 
it was to figure out what the size and the age of the universe are. Actually, mm -hmm. size is not something which is particularly interesting for reasons I won't go into, but but right. time is, because the universe is a, is a finite age, you know, so between 13 and 14 billion years. And at the time before Hubble, there was a tremendous controversy about what the actual rate of expansion of the universe was. The, the Big Bang is, is a, it's a label given to the discovery that the universe is expanding. Right. And so that means is if you look far out, you're looking back at time. And as you look back at time, the universe was actually smaller at that time. And it's expanded in the time in between. And, and because it's expanded everything, all the stuff embedded in it, like light is expanded. That was what gives rise to the redshift life. Wavelengths of light get longer as, it, as they come from an early time in the universe to a more distant time. But there was a raging controversy over exactly what the age was and what the rate of expansion was. And it's really the rate of expansion we can measure and we can infer the age from that rate of expansion. And the differences were a, were a factor of two. That is one camp said it was, you know, sort of 15 billion years and the other camp said it was sort of seven and a half billion. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sure I don't get the numbers quite right because it doesn't matter anymore. They were both wrong. Right. We know it's in between. Um, and the way and the, the problem that they had is you can't really directly measure the distance to distant objects uh, with a rule. I mean, you can't get out there and sort of do that. You can't do radar ranging. Right. You can't do I mean, it's, it's way out there. So you construct that you figure out the distance to distant sources through a series of steps called a distance ladder. And I, I won't go into this. This is sort of astronomy 101. Mm -hmm. The main point is that you want to find a source of light whose brightness you know, and then you measure the brightness that you detect at your telescope. And you know, it's intrinsically, it's like if it's a hundred watt light bulb, and it's a mile away, and then you measure the flux, you can figure out it's a mile if you knew it's actually 100 watts. Right. So we had a lot of sources that we knew pretty well exactly what their brightness was. But we couldn't detect them with ground-based telescopes far enough away to actually use them for this distance ladder directly. Mm -hmm. um, so the common ones are called Cepheid variables. They're just big, bright, old stars that pulsate. Brightness, the pulsation time, you know exactly how bright it is. And we could see those out to about the Andromeda galaxy, um, SA31, you know, the nearest large galaxy like ourselves in what is called the local group. But the local group is a group because it's all bound by gravity. So the universe expansion is not taking Andromeda away from us. It doesn't help. We can measure the distance to Andromeda, but we can't use that to infer anything about the uh, about the uh, expansion of the universe. And people calculated correctly and accurately that if we had a telescope in space, we could actually measure the Cepheid variables out to the nearest cluster of galaxies, the big one, the Virgo cluster, which is about 60 million light years with 20 million parsecs away, far enough away that there is some expansion. And we would then be able to cross calibrate that with other very bright things like supernovae, which would concede almost to the edge of the universe. So the whole idea was predicated on being able to make that measure. And it was an important enough measurement. You know, the age of the universe, this expansion rate of the universe is kind of fundamental. Even people who aren't astronomers say, well, okay, right. yeah, I, I get it. And so that's how Hubble came about. And that's generally called cosmology, the, the study of the history and the expansion of the universe. So that was Hubble. Two quick questions. Now, One, why on earth would there have been a, a 
controversy other than give five human beings five minutes and we'll come up with something to argue about. Well, and because, I, and I, yeah. because every time you make a measurement, there's some uncertainty in the measurement. And, and, and part of the art of doing good observational or experimental science is understanding what the real uncertainties are in the measurements you make. And that's not an easy thing, believe it or not. For many observations, you, you can identify easily a statistical uncertainty by making lots and lots of measurements and just seeing how they scatter around. You say, oh, there's certainly that uncertainty. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard to understand what the systematic uncertainty is, the things that affect the assumptions you make to get to that thing, which may be wrong because you're just too biased or you haven't figured it out. And so the two groups of astronomers who had this huge controversy as to the expansion rate were basically using the same data but they were making different assumptions about what the, what the systematic uncertainties were. And they were both biased. And it turns out that they were both equally biased in the, in, they were biased in opposite directions and they're both equally wrong compared to the actual answer. I mean, you know, it's just one of those things. So right. you know, humans have, uh, I mean, bias is just part of our makeup. I mean, we fight that all the time when we right. try to bring social justice to people. Right. There are lots of definitions of that. Yeah. So bias is just part of what's built into you. And, and it's a real fight for every observational or experimental scientist to understand what those biases are and to be honest with oneself about them, to say, you know, maybe maybe I'm wrong about this. Or right. I believe this thing since I was a kid, but maybe I had a question. But the, these guys were old, frankly. I mean, I'm old too, so I can say that. They were old enough that they were set in their ways. They were set in their biases. They were comfortable. And they made careers by arguing that their biases were correct. And then a younger generation came along and the younger generation didn't really have, they weren't wedded to the same biases and they go in with a different approach and they got a different answer. This was prior to Hubble. And they said, well, wait a minute, we think it's actually somewhere in between. Oh, this really pissed off the old guys. I mean, they really didn't like this at all. Really, these were the bad, you know, right. kind of young jerks. Uh, but it turns out that the young people were, were right. And, and it was Hubble that sorted it out and it got the answer pretty quickly. And when it got the answer, it turned out it was very close to what we now think is the actual perfect answer. Now people are having a similar argument, but at a very fine level, you know, yeah. at the sort of five, five percent level, whereas there it was a factor of two. Level. So that was that was the reason Hubble was built. And um, it turns out it may not be the most important thing that Hubble did. <laughs> and that's pretty common when you build a general purpose instrument. And it's because whenever you take new technology and you turn it on the universe and you look at the universe in a new way, you discover all sorts of things that you never could have imagined. And that was mm. that was true with Hubble as well. So I'm, this is sort of a plug for the technologists out there. To a large extent, astronomy has advanced on the backs of new technology, much of which was invented for completely different purposes, often mm. military purposes. Mm -hmm. And so that's, uh, I mean, we, we rely on that. Um, the, I'm, I'm trained as an infrared astronomer. My original uh, fields were all doing observations at infrared wavelengths. And it was all using equipment that was developed largely by the, I think the US military mm -hmm. uh, after World War II for surveillance and other things. The Vietnam War really accelerated that. We took advantage of that. We used that for the sky. Radio astronomy is the same way. It took advantage of all the, the developments in radar that were made for World War II. And a lot of those old radar engineers became radio astronomers afterwards because they wanted to see what the sky looked like, discovered all sorts of things. 
So the technology was really, really critical. And there were a lot of new technologies on Hubble that made it quite, quite spectacular. Why would, why would the age of the universe be important enough that a group of people in the funding arena say, yes, let's, let's deploy that. It's, it's important to our national security. It's important to our tax collectors. And, and let me forgive the, forgive this comparison. It's not very good, but I, I suppose as a, as an everyday person, would I particularly care, this is going to be a horrible analogy, but it's the only one that's coming to my mind, <clears throat> how fast earthworms travel. Um, like, like it doesn't, it doesn't seem to impact, maybe if I'm a horticulturalist or I see that the migration of them is important to, you know, uh, harvests or whatever, but it, why would I, if I have no control over the impact of the age or the youth of the universe or the, or the old age of the universe, by the way, Clint Eastwood, when you said that, it reminds me of what Clint Eastwood said. He was with Toby Keith, the country singer. And Toby Keith said, Clint, you're 90 something years old. You've done more today than I did 30 years younger than you. What's your secret? He said, I just don't let the old man in. If you don't know what your birthday is, you know, and you live as if you don't know what your birthday is. And for some people, that'd probably just be a nice little marketing slogan. But this guy's probably done more after 80 than I've done in my nearly 60 years today. There, there are, there are, yeah, there are really impressive people that way. I, I, I'm always uh, kind of amazed, especially since I'm getting to that age. And I think, you know, this is, I mean, it's not easy. <laughs> it's yeah. not even easy to get up every morning and face it. Um, well, look, your um, your question touches on on a couple of different things, okay, and I think they're interesting. So let me elaborate. Please. So the first thing is uh, in science, especially this is pr- true of I think almost all fields of research, but in science, there is a tendency to to see often in retrospect to distinguish what's considered fundamental or very important questions or pieces of knowledge and distinguish that from what would be considered more or less side issues. Okay. So the age of the universe is one of the most fundamental numbers or concepts in all of cosmology and frankly, in religion. Okay. So well, all I can religions, see why in philosophy, you know, so all religions religion, have, yeah. the, have their origin stories, right? And yeah. sometimes these origin stories even have time attached to it. So sure. The, what was it, the Bishop Usher in uh, oh, several centuries ago went through the Bible and very carefully looking at the sort of gen- generations and all of that determined right. that the earth was exactly 60,000 years old. Right. Now, I mean, we know that that's not true. It's I mean, inaccurate. We have many ways of demonstrating that the, right. the earth is, is many orders of magnitude older than that and right. the universe as well. The point is not that he was wrong. The point is that he cared. Right. And he wasn't the only one. So, so the age of the universe is actually something that probably a lot of people would be interested in on their own, um, mm. just because it is, as I say, a, a sort of a fundamental concept of humanity. Mm-hmm. But in addition, in a science like cosmology, there are kind of a few things that you worry about. And, and one is to characterize the, the current state and evolution of the universe. So the age, the rate of expansion, I said the size, but the size is a bit of a misnomer because the size is really just how far we can see, 
how far light has been able to travel since the beginning, but it may, right. it could be even bigger than that. So, right. so we don't worry so much about size, but overall what's called curvature. I mean, the curvature of space time, whether there's an effect of say the mass or other an anti-mass is sort of a dark energy, whether that curves space time in a way we can measure. So those are considered very fundamental concepts. Then there are lots of things within cosmology that are kind of interesting to do, but they're not quite as fundamental. So if you discuss, if for example, you're interested in, in exactly how the Andromeda galaxy was created, and there's a lot of research where you're sort of measuring the orbits of stars around it. And you're trying to figure out how it all got assembled and what its age is and various markers. I mean, that's interesting. And it keeps a lot of astronomers um, very happily occupied with research. But, you know, Andromeda is one of, you know, several, not even hundred billion. I mean, it's, it's hundreds of hundreds of billions <laughs> I, of it's galaxies. A big number. And right. It's just another thing, right? I mean, right. you know, we're just a little thing out there. So, you know, it's kind of a side issue. I mean, it's useful to do this for a few things so that you get a sense of how galaxies are created, but mm -hmm. it's not nearly as fundamental as how old is the whole shebang, right? right. And it's the same thing of questions like, uh, we know that the universe is pervaded with some kind of matter that we can't see. It's called dark matter because it doesn't radiate. We can, that's mm -hmm. why we don't see it. And we don't know what it is. And it could be lots of things. It could be fundamental elementary particles that we don't understand or haven't discovered. It could be black holes. I mean, there are a, lot, a number of things it could be. But that's considered fairly fundamental because if you do a budget of the universe, that accounts for like 30% of the universe. Whereas we matter, I mean, not just humans, but all of matter, all the hydrogen atoms, all that, it's mm -hmm. like just a couple percent. Mm -hmm. So so these are very these are considered very fundamental. And the age of the universe is a very fundamental number, and getting it wrong was not good. And so it's not too easy, not too difficult for the people uh, who are in the federal agencies to recognize this. And and I should say that the People in the federal agencies were not dealing, when I were to put in a grant proposal, for example, and it gets peer reviewed, the program officer is a scientist, him or herself. And mm -hmm. I know many of them. And, and they're usually very good. And they often get people who are quite reputable. I mean, they, they've already had tenure somewhere at another university, and they've decided they're going to go to the NSF, or right. they're going to work at NASA, and they oversee this. And it's largely an administrative job, but it requires some judgment and some taste as to what they're going to put money into and what they won't. And so, you know, they do, a, the government agencies, I think, do a very good job of that within science. And the incredible progress you see in science, not just in astronomy, but in medicine is probably even at a, at a higher rate. You know, all this stuff like the, uh, the COVID vaccines, I mean, that's the result of decades of investment in people doing interesting studies to figure out why something happens in a certain way. And once we understand the under underlying fundamentals, when you need an application, like, well, we need to tailor this RNA for this particular virus, or, you know, we need to measure the this fundamental constant, and we've got new technology, it's, it's relatively easy uh, to do. You're talking about, um, first of all, that's also been my experience in the last year and a half or two years of doing these podcasts, how many people, whether they've served in DARPA or they've served with the NSF or they're, they're you know, where they are in these various, both private and public exercises. It's really interesting. We had Dave Ginger uh, on here, Professor Ginger from uh, University of Washington. Just We just had a, a great conversation about quantum dots and how quantum computing and quantum physics, his area of expertise with his lab, also now part of a, a grant program that the NSF is um, 
is managing is the this relationship between optical and electricity. So everything from the surface of your smartphone to all these other things and how we can use that, not just in our um, uh, space exploration, but just practical everyday appliances, climate change. Like, how yeah. do we apply these things? It's really interesting. And they have this common, it's almost like you see with startups, this so sort of this common theme of entrepreneurship and all these other things. And with scientists that really have not just an aptitude of math or ability to think critically and logically, but a, a genuine joy of, man, I cannot wait to explore and to, and to, and to dive into this. It's, um, it's, it's been a blast. I guess as, you're, as you were talking about this, what I'm, I'm curious about is well, you know, I was going to say how do they how do they rank this over something else, but I will just go down. I do see from a certainly from a philosophical perspective, um, you know, it's interesting to me as scientists seems like they're they're darned if they do, they're darned if they don't. The idea is to take stuff that I can measure, put it on my workbench, and measure it. But I also need to hypothesize a whole bunch of things. <laughs> Which, depending upon the limitations of my tools and, you know, my imagination, I can only measure so much. And as I get new tools, why are you going to judge me by something I predicted 10 years ago or 1,000 years ago when I got new tools and now I have new data? Well, okay. So, look, we're professional. I mean, I'm in a profession, sure. right? And Absolutely. As with any profession, which is a craft, it takes a long time to kind of get good at it. And when you get pretty good at it, you develop an intuition which allows you to make shortcuts. So you, you right. pretty easily see, well, this isn't so critical, right. but I need to pay attention to that. And I think you see that. The training system we have at the moment is second to none. I mean, there's nothing, I don't think there's any other country in the world that uh, is, well, there's one other country that kind of comes close to us in terms of uh, its training of top research scientists, probably. And that's Britain, they have, you know, they have some Asian. For a and, second, and the other I you're going to say France. Well too, but we and have, I have a very highly. Well, France is very good in its own way. I mean, they all, all these countries have some, but we have a huge enterprise. We just invest a lot of money and, and we have a very good system through the universities of graduate schools. Uh, graduate education is, is, is rigorous and it on balance turns right. out uh, a very good product a very good group of researchers i just have french friends and they're so obnoxious we don't need to give them any credit i'm sure france well, we is won't. an amazing country with amazing you know, all these successes. countries have different i mean france is very good traditionally very good in things like mathematics right. they're super strong in mathematics yeah. i let, let's not get into that yeah, because that's, yeah, a, that's, a, yeah. that's a dangerous path but let me circle back to something you asked earlier so yeah. i talked a lot about hubble but i never said anything about the James yeah that's Webber. where i wanted to go you yeah, please so why so using the same logic the james webb must have been it's a general purpose observatory it doesn't do everything Hubble does, but it does lots of things Hubble could never do. And what was the purpose of building the James Webb? So the, the official reason is this. We want to understand how the matter, us, galaxies, stars, nebula, all that, ultimately planets, how they were assembled from the after the Big Bang when there was none of that stuff. The universe was just filled with it was filled with matter. Mm -hmm. It was more or less evenly distributed with a few fluctuations. 
But out of this sort of general soup, creation happened. Everything mm -hmm. happened to create us mm -hmm. and lead to this podcast. It was mm -hmm. all based on leading this podcast. Right. So we want, we'd like to know how that happened. And we have pretty good ideas of how it happened by a combination of deep thinking, which we call theory, theor theoretical astrophysics, coupled with lots of computer simulations of what might, what's plausible and what's not. Um, and many observations, many of which came from Hubble. And when I said that I didn't think that the age of the universe was necessarily the most interesting or important thing that Hubble did, one of the things that ranks up there is possibly even more important was the discovery of some of the most distant and first galaxies that were being assembled, you know, mm -hmm. sort of before our eyes in retrospect, because the light has been has been traveling a long time. Mm -hmm. And we could see that the universe was filled with these young structures that if we had a more powerful telescope, we could probably sort it out. So mm -hmm. Hubble was limited to get to a certain depth. And, you know, nobody, let me just say, with the possible exception of a few professionals, nobody listening to this podcast has a very good intuitive sense Probably of what not. a light year is or a parsec <laughs> or any of that stuff. Right. So let me just go to the Argo of my profession and say the way that we measure distance at very distant things is by the redshift, by the amount of the shift, the light has been shifted. And that shift comes about because the universe was very young when the light was emitted and it expanded. And so the light expanded with it. And the amount of expansion is a direct measure of how much the universe has expanded. So the bigger the redshift, the younger the universe was when the light was emitted. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so if you talk to professionals, you don't, worry about light years or even parsecs you say what's mm -hmm. the redshift because the mm -hmm. redshift tells you the distance now these redshifts are pretty large so um prior to hubble <clears throat> a redshift of about one which meant that the universe was about half the size when the light was emitted because it's a shift it's not an absolute um and it, it it and so the shift you know the 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 basically the the light doubled in size so the shift was a hundred percent of its original size um, that redshift of one was was pretty typical. And that gets us back to when the universe was about half of the age it is now, which turns out not to be very interesting because the universe in the last six or seven or eight billion years hasn't changed dramatically. Most of the action was at earlier times. Hubble got us back to redshifts. In the end, I think the Hubble saw objects at redshifts of around seven or eight pretty easily. That means the universe was only was roughly 10% of its current size. I mean, think of that. The universe had evolved from a thing that was 10% of its current size to now. And we were looking back to that time. It turns and so the and Hubble made this discovery and, and nobody really figured nobody thought it now I wouldn't say nobody thought it would happen. But some of the real experts in the field of cosmology and galaxies and galaxy formation said, nah, Hubble will never see that. And then it did. It was a big surprise. So that kind of whetted our appetites, though, right? because we couldn't really see back far enough to see the very first structures that might be forming. If we looked at our theories and we looked at our computer simulations, that put the universe, that put the, the redshift we had to go to anywhere between 10 and 15. And we were getting, we weren't even getting to 10. Maybe we were getting sort of to five easily and 
eight with very rare instances, but not so that you could really do statistical studies. However, and, and part of the problem is that when you get back to a redshift of 15, light, which you, know, you and I see, is now redshifted out into what's called the thermal infrared. It's at wavelengths so long. I mean, even very special technology is needed to, to see it. Almost mm -hmm. all of which, by the way, was developed for military applications. So for example, heat-seeking missiles rely on infrared radiation from the thermal, not just the thermal exhaust, but particular lines in the exhaust, which show it's from a jet fuel or rocket fuel to, to home in on the missiles. When, uh, I don't know if you ever saw the uh, movie uh, Patriot Games. Oh, you know, yeah. It's one of the clients. And do you remember the scene where they had a surveillance satellite flying over the camp and yes. they then had infrared images of people inside the tents because they weren't detecting their light. They were detecting the radiation of the heat they were given off. Right. That's thermal infrared. And that yeah. was developed for that kind of purpose. Now, if you can do thermal infrared and look at the cosmos, then in principle, you should be able to get back all the way to the very first beginnings of the very first structures and stars and galaxies, which is a redshift of around 15. Right. And then, uh, but you have to collect a lot of light. I mean, it's, it's not like you, you just get the camera and then turn it on the sky and it's for free. No, right. you need a very big telescope. And so uh, it, was, it was worked out that you needed a telescope that was about three times the size of Hubble, more or less. Mm -hmm. And Webb is. Webb is a 6.5 meter telescope and Hubble is a 2.4 meter telescope, I believe. So it's a little less than three times the size, but it's, mm -hmm. it's very big. And then you had to cool the telescope because thermal radiation is given off by normal structures, right? If, if someone in a tent emits this radiation, then the telescope, if it's at room temperature, emits the same radiation. So you can't have your telescope at room temperature. You've got to cool it down to, you know, basically colder than what liquid air is on Earth. You've got to cool it to half the temperature of liquid air. So all of this was, was exotic and difficult, but we figured if you could get a big enough mirror, get it far enough away from the Earth so that you can shield it from the sun, let it cool down to these temperatures, and put one of the modern military developed uh, infrared sensors on that we could actually see out to a redshift of as far as 20, which is farther than we thought we would even be able to see anything. Mm. And so that's how James Webb was designed. It was designed as a telescope that was going to be able to see the very first structures of light, the very first stars and galaxies that were condensing out of this universal soup at early times, I, AKA at very high redshifts. Right. And it has achieved that. I mean, it has absolutely achieved it. Now I haven't seen all the new studies that, you know, people, uh, especially people uh, much younger than I am are now beavering away, uh, taking data with web and they're going to assemble statistical samples of these very early galaxies. And they'll, we'll see what the answer is they'll they'll tell us yeah. uh, but that was really the primary focus of of the design of the james webb as a successor to hubble and it, it concentrates very much on these infrared wavelengths and not on the optical wavelengths that we generally see so the things that we see at about half a micron five thousand angstroms some of you learned in school mm -hmm. that's a typical kind of a green light uh that that's I mean Web can do some of that, but it's not designed for that. It's really designed to look out at wavelengths beyond about one micron, which we can't see. It's all very distant infrared, but it's a general purpose observatory, and so that means that once you've designed it, 
to look for these little structures in the very distant universe at very high redshift. You can also look for thermal radiation from things a little bit like us, like planets around nearby stars. Because for example, the earth, if you're looking for the earth, the peak of radiation for the earth was it radiates its own uh, uh, light into space is around 10 microns. It's the same thermal radiation that you detect, you see in, in the movie Patriot Games. And so Hubble uh, Webb will be able to look in the thermal infrared for, it will be able to take spectra, will be able to look for molecules, uh, which is harder for Hubble to do because the molecules that don't, you know, most of the most of that in interest is out at longer wavelengths. Mm -hmm. uh, it will be able to look for the actual radiation from these planets, especially as they circle nearby stars and they're modulated. And so there are a whole host of things that the web can do now. And I, I, I would predict, I would make a bet that the most interesting thing that web discovers for us, you, the public, mm -hmm. uh, will not be the first structures in the universe. I mean, it will do that, it mm -hmm. will be great. But I'm guessing there's there's going to be very interesting stuff out there that we don't really have the imagination for because we've never been able to look at the universe with that kind of clarity at those wavelengths, that kind of sensitivity. As you're talking, it reminded me, first of all, if I'm one of these scientists looking at the data that's coming in, when they discover, whether it's the edge, ironically, in the IT business, when we talk about cloud computing, we have a concept of edge. And I've learned that in astronomy, especially deep space observation, there's also an edge. Um, well, the, ed the edge looking out is simply the limit of how far you can see. And it's limited by your instrumentation. <clears throat> it's also, I would say, if your instrumentation allowed you to see anything. It's also limited by the age of the universe because if you can't see anything that's more right. distant from you than the time it took light to travel to you during the age of the universe. Right. The universe could be much, much bigger really than that light travel time. And we right. actually know from observations of the universe at very early ages in radio observations, things, something called the cosmic background radiation, which let me just say that would be for another podcast. But we do know by looking at that, that at the time, at that time in the universe, there were many structures in the universe which were causally disconnected. That is, they were far enough apart from one another that they could never have seen one another in the entire history of the universe from the Big Bang up until that time. Mm. And because the universe expanded and because as it expanded, light could travel further and further, many of these structures eventually could see one another, but they couldn't at an early time. But the same thing is true now. There may be structures in a larger universe that we can't see beyond what we call our horizon. And the horizon is how far, how, how far it is that light could have traveled in the entire age of the universe. That's our horizon, but there could be other things be beyond the horizon that right. are still part of the overall universe, but, but not things that we can see. I imagine there's going to be some experiences there already has been, but I imagine there's going to be just tremendous things. When we, one of the consequences of putting satellites up as we aim them back down, not just to communicate, but also just to observe especially as we brought other tools alongside like artificial intelligence and um, uh, data analytics and machine learning where they began saying, you know what, this structure 
as, as I penetrate looking into the bay offside, uh, off the coast of Italy or whatever, look at the symmetrical pattern of the structure that's been covered by the ocean or that's been, you know, if you, if you kind of squint your eyes, and so the machines are just learning at those things, and they are, as they've collected data over time, and they compare them, they're able to say, hmm, maybe this wasn't as accidental. And they're, be, they're, they're beginning to um, discover, if I'm an archaeologist, I might not necessarily have been thinking about satellites, but part of your general observation platform idea, they can look down, they look at things, and while we're looking at weather patterns or these other things, they're able to say, you know what, here's an interesting phenomenon. Maybe you guys should go look at that. Maybe it's just a coincidence of nature, but perhaps it looks like it's organized and structured in such a way that there's an intelligence behind that. You should go check that out, and we can leverage those. Well, you've you've opened up a, a great, this sort of this is a great new avenue for conversation, especially okay. for your podcast, which is oriented so much to technology. Yeah. Um, first, let me say that a lot of what science is is explaining regular structures we see. I mean, right. even if you look at biology, you can think of organisms as structures. I mean, they're sure. they're moving around, uh, and you go, "Whoa, that's a little different than the rocks." How does that come to be? But right. geology is looking at patterns in the rocks and understanding how they come about. Astronomy, to a large extent, is just looking at the structures we see in the universe, stars or galaxies or nebulae or things, and trying to figure out how those structures came about and why and what it, what it all means, which is sort of how it all fits together in a larger sort of uniform uh, picture. So, th so the discovery of structure is has often been the, at the forefront of every new science. And, mm -hmm. and you see this in biology. In very early biology, it was sort of about cataloging. So, oh, well, you know, uh, here's a butterfly. This is obviously different than an ape, right? Mm -hmm. So we got to put this ape in this category and this butterfly in this category. But the butterfly doesn't look as different from a dragonfly. And the ape doesn't look as different from, say, a human as they do from one another. So then they build up this hierarchy of categories, which they then have to explain by some grand theory if, if possible. That's, that's mm -hmm. the way the reductionist science works. And so the discovery of structure is really a leading kind of a forefront indicator of new stuff. Now, um, in the past, this has relied very much on people, uh, typically scientists, these days it would be scientists because there are professional classes of people called scientists like me. Mm -hmm. uh, a few centuries ago, they weren't exactly scientists. They were just people who were curious and smart. Um, mm -hmm. That's Galileo. He was mm -hmm. curious and smart. Sometimes they were curious, smart, and rich. And they said, well, I'm not going to spend my time, you know, sort of giving parties for other rich people. I'm going to like build a telescope and go out right. and look at the sky. That's what Herschel did. A lot of people did that. And so the, you know, in the early days, it was just interested people. Now there are professional classes of people who do it. Uh, the successful ones though, are very, almost, always, almost always very good at looking at new things and discerning patterns of interest and having an intuition, which is honed to discern patterns of interest. Now, um, Collecting data on some of these things, some of these subjects, was pretty time-consuming and onerous in the past. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think of Darwin's voyage, and he went out and he netted butterflies or got birds, or, you know, brought back specimens. And so you could you had plenty of time to think about the patterns while you were collecting the data. But in a modern astronomical instrument, we collect data at such a high rate 
that it's virtually impossible to think of anybody actually looking at it for patterns as it comes right. in. We have a uh, one of our graduate students at Berkeley uh, is now working with a camera in the lab, which has a pixel format, individual picture elements, uh, which are 10,000 by 10,000. So that means uh, every every picture is a is a hundred million individual picture elements and each of those picture elements has a depth that is it has a it can detect light at a you know discern levels you know to something like uh 65,000 or 100,000 separate levels so every time that camera is turned on the amount of information it produces is enormous every exposure now of course you know if you look at pictures of the sky that there are lots of times you take pictures of the sky and most of the pixels are uninteresting. You know, they're the dark regions between the few bright regions you care about. Mm -hmm. However, with these days, especially with, with, with telescopes like Webb, almost every picture has an information capacity which is beyond the human mind to easily assimilate and look at if you have a lot of them. Just go on the web and take, not, this is the internet now, not right. the James Webb. <laughs> if you go on the internet and you look at some of the, the really neat kind of art shots that have come out from the web telescope, especially the distant ones of galaxies and clusters of galaxies, and you just take a look. I mean, you're probably only seeing a small fraction of what that picture is because the bandwidth, you, you can't download all the information with a typical link anyway. So they, they, they cull it, they crop it. So you only see part of it, but you'll be impressed by how, how much information there is. And the telescope is gonna be producing that level of information every few seconds or every few minutes, depending on the observation. So why do I point this out? Well, it's because a lot of what art of what's called AI or machine learning, let me just say machine learning, a lot of machine learning and the new revolutions in teaching computers to learn things is that what they're largely doing is they're identifying patterns. And we can teach computers to identify well-known patterns like to recognize cats or dogs, or even your own face, which is what the iPhone has to do when it uses facial recognition software to unlock it. It right. needs some, you know, it knows that one pattern. It's already learned that. Um, the machines, however, the, the, the algorithms, the, the way the uh, programs written for these machines in many cases are clever enough to go out and look for patterns that we can't teach it. That is, they look for completely new patterns. It's called unsupervised learning. And so a kind of a new area of research, which is we don't know yet what it will yield. We don't know much about it. We, we know kind of how to do it, but we don't really know what the, what the promise is is to use some of these programs to look at the vast troves of data that come out of these modern observatories and to see if the machines will discover patterns for us then say you might not have thought of that but look at this this is interesting which just distills huge amounts of data down to a few simple ideas and to see if that's going to be the way that we make some of our discoveries of patterns interesting patterns for research in the future i've heard of <clears throat> stepping away from technology and how we're getting machines to do it. I've heard that in the past, we'll get different people groups to come and listen to something or to observe something, or sometimes children that, that don't have a preconceived idea of what something should look like or sound like or whatever, and you expose them to, to uh, images or sounds or whatever and see if they can 
if there's anything that stirs in their imagination and it's yeah, it's, citizen science citizen yeah. science i was once on a committee i'm i this this will show you how old fartish i am but i was once on a committee with a, a, a colleague and a, and a good friend of mine jill tartar who's is much more famous than i am because she's she's into the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and 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 we were on the committee and somebody put out it was, it was one of these funding committees and somebody said well you know we ought to consider putting some money into citizen science and I, at the time, I kind of poo-pooed. I said, ah, you know, what, really? I mean, use the money for people who are professionals. And Jill stood up and said, no, this is the emerging area. <laughs> she said, citizen science is going to revolutionize things. And I would say in retrospect, she is basically right. And uh, I was wrong. I think that uh, making data available for people who are not specifically trained in the field and, and getting them to help out in doing research is, is a big revolution. I, you know, I'm not sure it's going to replace the professional class of scientists. In fact, I'm sure it won't because somebody has to teach this stuff and university professors right. are going to have to still come through the normal ranks to have the credentials to be able to teach your children right. you know, what, what you will consider to be credible science. Uh, nevertheless, in terms of research, bringing other people, ordinary people, when ordinary is ordinary is almost a pejorative word. I right. should say non, not the, the lay person, a regular. Uh, well, right. the untrained lay has a right. religious connotation too. Right. someone who is not specifically trained, but obviously very intelligent and curious. I mean, that I think is a revolution. And and the the availability now of data to get to people easily and just download it from the Internet. Uh, is 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 a great new thing I think for 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 astronomy certainly and for science in general, and uh, it's one of the things one of the ways that we evolved our institutions. Uh, that is, it used to be that when astronomers took data, it was theirs; they didn't have to let anybody look at it. They published mm -hmm. papers, but they hoarded it. There was a lot of you know was, careers were made in sure. that way. Uh, but but one of the big revolutions happened um, at the institute. Uh, where I was a director for a while, the Space Telescope Science Institute, by my immediate predecessor, the director who preceded me was Bob Williams. And Bob uh, realized that, you know, there, there, would, there could be a great deal to be had by taking very good data and making it immediately open to everybody to use. Mm -hmm. And so that's the original Hubble Deep Field was that. They took the deepest picture of the universe at the time, and they didn't hoard it to do research. They immediately made it public, both the raw data, which are pretty hard to deal with because you have to remove a lot of instrumental signatures, and also process data, which was much easier to deal with and just make it available to everybody and and that's the big rage now there are there are there will be entire facilities like the the lsst the large uh, what is it called the uh, synoptic uh, survey telescope hmm. where they're going to take uh, an, a picture of essentially the entire sky every three days just in a, in a cadence every three days you're going to get a whole new picture of the sky all that data are going to be public they, they wow. just rather than hoarding it and have groups of astronomers, let everybody have a go at it. It's a market economy in ideas. Right. And, and, and citizen astronomy is a little bit like that too. If, if people are interested and they can get in, give them the data. I mean, we, they paid for it at some level with their taxes. It's, it's a good thing to do. As long as it's not citizen media. And what I mean by that is I love the days I didn't think I would, but I, I now love the days when we had peer-reviewed media. There are consequences for right, posting right. 
news stories and whatever that hadn't been with your peers and a consequence if you got it wrong. I, I'm pretty libertarian minded, so I am hugely a huge proponent of anybody and everybody take a camera, write something down. I, I don't have a problem, but I don't want to give weight to non-peer reviewed. We just go off the we've we've seen a propensity, certainly in the last five or 10 years, um, to kind of go off the rails. And so citizen scientists, I love the idea of um, I have, you know, here's my day job, this is what I'm trained in, but I have an affinity and a passion for this other thing. And should I discern a pattern or should I discern something that seems interesting? How can I bring it to a group that can say, um, that's very interesting. It's very curious. Challenge our thinking. Challenge the norm. Now let's put it through an evaluative uh, process to determine is there value here or not. And I don't mean that by way of creating a, uh, you know, a, an unnatural barrier to overcome. But I want that tension of uh, sort of liberal free thinking with an institution. Uh, in that where you were talking about earlier about young people coming in with old people, like that's the his. I think that's where humanity works the best is when we have this tension between these groups so that we can not throw out. I don't want people that have been on the job in Congress three years to negotiate international trade deals, but maybe somebody who's been there for forty years needs to be thinking about some of the social norms that are changing. So whatever that tension is. So I love the idea of. The, the citizenry contributing because they have the tools and the ability to submit. But I, if we're public, if we're publishing and making uh, significant changes, I sure hope it's peer reviewed. Well, I, you know, I think that touches on a very interesting topic. I don't, I don't really know where this is going. I don't have a strong opinion. I, I don't tend to think of astronomical data as being dangerous in the same way as. <clears throat> high-powered weapons or uh, sure. social media where you can propagate you know right. not just not just lies but lies which have a specific intent to right. undermine the integrity of other people or, or even good or, intentions or but society. they're just wrong yeah or our society i mean i don't think of astronomical data that way and i do <laughs> think that we're seeing some corrections here david in social media it's it's you know like anything it's it's a new frontier sure. yep. nobody quite knows i mean yep. you know, the even the Congress people don't really know right. how what the best way is to to balance this sort of free expression versus right. the danger that comes. Um, but we are seeing this a little bit with with things like the lawsuits against this guy Alex Jones, who you know put this stuff out, and a bunch of people got together and said, you know, I think that's bad enough; it should be illegal. And that's right. it's it's a crude way to approach it, but it is it is a form of. It is, it is in our system a form of self-regulation, which may, if that becomes more successful as it has, that may you, we may see more of that. But I, don't, I, I haven't thought that science would be in that boat. I may be wrong, though. I, I don't know. Uh, after all, I have found when I, when I gave lectures in astronomy, public lectures, <clears throat> there were always a contingent of the audience who wanted to bring religion into it, who mm -hmm. wanted to know either my feelings on religion or how these, how these particular um, findings impacted maybe their religion. And mm -hmm. we've already seen earlier in the podcast that possibility. Right. We as scientists who study the universe and the age of the universe and the things in it are quite confident that 60,000 years is 
right. nothing. I mean, it's not right. anywhere close to the age of the right. universe or the origin of time. And that could clearly offend uh, people right. who have deep religious views that are informed by faith as opposed to looking at evidence. Right. Uh, and I and I just don't know. Uh, I, I do know that uh, there are passions that run strongly from this. So religion stirs deep passions mm -hmm. and uh, science generally only stirs deep passions in the people who are practicing right. are willing to stay up late and do other things because of our curiosity, but it doesn't, I, I, but I don't know. And, and I do think it's a good question. You know, is it responsible for us to give data out there? Will people suddenly be finding, you know, alien signatures and otherwise bland data and then pushing that? I, I, I just don't know. I think it's, uh, we'll have to see. Yeah. As it relates to any philosophical, whether it's religious or any of the philosophical thoughts, there, even within the various groups that I've talked to, whether it's my tradition or others, there is debate about how old things are, how, what, what did that mean, how, what, what's the cure? And I, I think that's probably, it, that's never going to go away. That's part of the human philosophical uh, tradition. I am, I am curious, kind of going back to Hubble and Webb, Hubble, you talked about in the very beginning, orbits the Earth, low Earth orbit. Yes. So I want to, at some point, get to a conversation, if we have time, about um, the number of constellations we're proposing from a satellite and communication and the impact. But before we get there, does Webb orbit in the same way, or is no. it a further... How does no. that work? So Webb is at, um, Webb is at a particular spot okay. in the Earth-Sun system orbit. So, you know, the Earth orbits the Sun, I hope... Right. I hope this isn't a surprise to listeners <laughs> to your podcast. Maybe. Uh, because the Earth orbits the sun, it sets up a framework. If you think of the Earth and the sun as anchoring like a line, and mm. that line is going around, we can think of that as our Earth-Sun framework. Right. Now, it turns out within that framework, there are also particular places where because the gravity of the sun and the gravity of the Earth and the motion <laughs> act together to cancel to cancel changes, there, there are particular nodes where um, within that framework, they're, they're steady, they're constant. Mm -hmm. And these are called Lagrangian points after the famous French, very famous French <laughs> mathematician Lagrange. And uh, there are five of them. So four of them are actually pretty close to the Earth. So if you think of the Earth here and the Sun here, if you drew a line from the center of the Sun through the center of the Earth, L one is the point which is between the earth and the sun which is stationary as we go around if you put a satellite there it would sit there it would not orbit at a different velocity even though it's closer to the sun because the earth earth's gravity keeps it slows it down a little bit there's another one called l2 which is about a million miles from earth along that same line that's where we're putting all our new telescopes and satellites that's where the web goes mm. and then l3 and l4 are on opposite sides. They're sort of in the Earth's orbit. And I won't go into the mathematics of it. It's probably boring, but they also orbit around. And then there's one L5, which is on the other side. So right. you can, so there are these five Lagrangian points. And L2 is especially useful. It's about a million miles from the Earth. But if you put something there and you have to station keep a little bit, I mean, it, it, it can wander, but it's mm -hmm. easy to station keep. It will just keep orbiting in that same position as seen from the earth all the way around forever. 
mm. certainly for a year. And so, you know, you can, we can always see it. It's right out there. It's not drifting away or drifting closer. And it's, uh, it's a long way away. Now, being a long way away gives it a number of very distinct advantages compared to the Hubble, which is in low Earth orbit. Um, the first is that the Earth itself generates a lot of kind of noise, which is bad for astronomy. I mean, we're outside of the Earth's atmosphere, but we're not quite outside of its radio sphere. You know, we see radio emission from the Earth. We see light from the Earth. The Earth has a glow and a glint. There's residual atmosphere from the Earth. Plus, if you're in low Earth orbit, you're whizzing around a lot. So the sky is changing and you're always having to deal with where the Earth is and the sun is. If you're out at L2, very benign. You know where the Earth and the sun is. They're always in the same spot. They change very slowly. Right. And furthermore, you're far enough away that the radiation from the Earth is not going to heat up the satellite in any way, which is actually a, a problem for low Earth satellites. So you can you can put a sunshade up. This is what they did with Webb. You can get it cool, very cool. It's radio quiet. It's it's very benign. So all things considered, you'd love to have all of your satellites at L2. Now, there are a couple of downsides to this. One downside is because it's a long distance away, it's not easy to get the data back. That is, you have to telemetry it, or you have to send it back via some radio signal, or in principle, you could have an optical laser. But in any case, the farther away this thing is, the more power you need to send your data back. And that power is a big problem on satellites. Not so much for web because it's a huge satellite. So they've got lots of extra weight and things they can use for power, but it's not easy. And, and it means that the bandwidth or the data rate, you know, what you pay for, if you go to a, I don't know, you go to a cable company or DSL right. provider, they give you a certain bandwidth. And, and if these days you can buy, I know what I, in San Francisco, I, I get a gigabit. Mm -hmm. I promised a gigabit. Right. I don't, get a gigabit but you know at good times in the middle of the night i get a gigabit of data and right. you'd love to have a gigabit of data coming from web because remember what i said it's producing enormous amounts of data right. but getting a gigabit of data back from l2 a million miles away is not an easy thing to do so that's one of the downsides the other downside is if you're in low earth orbit you're actually shielded from a lot of the harshness of space Mm -hmm. So the sun has a wind of particles that it, it puts out called the mm -hmm. solar wind, very high energy radiation, uh, protons, electrons, some heavier ions, uh, and a certain amount of just pure out radiate, you know, high energy radiation like mm -hmm. gamma rays. And when you're in low earth orbit, you're, you're shielded uh, because the earth's magnetic field essentially traps a lot of that stuff. And so you don't get irradiated with with as much of the high energy stuff that's coming from the solar wind and, and also coming from the cosmos so for example on the space station one of the reasons that it's possible for astronauts to live on the space station for a year at a time is because it isn't a very high radiation environment you, you're you're low enough and under this sort of shield or sheath created by the earth's magnetic field that that you're protected if you wanted to go to Mars or even the moon, you're outside of that shield. And one of the big problems with going to Mars that nobody ever talks about, but if you go to Mars, it'll take you at least three months with any current technology. Mm. If on the way there's a solar flare with an enormous amount of radiation, as that flare of radiation passes your spacecraft, it will just kill you. It will kill anything on it. It's and in principle, you could shield yourself from that, but you need a lot of lead. And it's not easy, as you know, to 
put heavy things in orbit. So Webb suffers the same problem. That is the, the very sensitive electronics and detectors and all of that. They also have to worry about the fact that it is not shielded anymore from that radiation by the low by the Earth's magnetic field. So Hubble had that advantage that it was mm -hmm. it was down uh, at sort of space station heights and and that was good. And because it was closer to the Earth, it was actually it's actually pretty easy to send the data back down to Earth as well. And so those are the kind of two advantages of the trade-offs. But but from the astronomy standpoint, going to L two is is a little bit like going from the ground to space and getting above the Earth's atmosphere. It just gives you a number of, of, of positives, which you really want to have. Uh, I've had um, a citizen astronaut on the show. Her name was Dr. Shauna Pandya. And I also, very shortly, we're releasing a podcast we did with uh, Dr. James Garvin out of the Goddard Space Center. He's a principal investigator on the Da Vinci mission. He's been a chief scientist in the past for uh, NASA. And both of them have spoken about uh, the radiation challenge, especially for long-term or long-distance yeah, space flight, it's big, it's one and of the even biggest. how it affects men and women differently. Like if I'm a woman and um, the consequences of radiation on a female body as opposed to in their biology as opposed to a male, and in particular if they were pregnant and undid, like all, all of these complexities that we're still trying to think through, not just fuel and food and all these other things, but it is um, it's a lot of obstacles to overcome. Oh, that's right. And it doesn't get a lot better when you actually get to where you're going. Right. So on the moon, for example, you know, the moon doesn't have make, the moon doesn't shield you either. You're just right. out there. Right? right. So if you're there for a couple of days, like the Apollo astronauts were, the risk of a solar flare is pretty small. But if you set up a base camp on the moon, you have to worry that right. when you're up there, the sun will, you know, flare. And um, so they've had various ideas about what to do. You know, they kind of, what they do is they start by making their base camp uh accessible to these craters or lunar caves where if a if a flare goes off you'll know at the speed of light you'll know it's gone off before the actual radiation particles get to you and you have enough time maybe to get down under a solar berm and use the um, lunar berm and get and use that for shielding so that's one of the ideas, the other ideas, you know, you'll create concrete structures. And I mean, you can see where this is going. Yeah. But if the same problem is going to ha happen at Mars, the, the radiation intensity will be diminished because Mars is, is sort of twice as way, far away from the sun as the Earth. Mm -hmm. And the radiation intensity goes down as, as one over the square of the distance. So that means that it's, if it's twice as far away, it's, it gets only a quarter of the intensity or flux of radiation. But it could still be pretty, pretty um, big, and because you want to generally be on the side that's lit up, so you can see, and and because the cold, the other side is very cold, you know, you're you're often facing the sun. So these are all technical problems that are not yet solved, but will need to be solved if any of if we want to really do long-term exploration of these other solar system bodies. It reminds me in a very unusual way of middle America in the middle of the 19th century when we're trying to settle Oklahoma or Kansas or whatever. And we had their version of a solar flare was a twister that would show up. They have no idea. They didn't reckon, you know, they would, they could get a momentary, you know, a few moment notice of the cloud formation or whatever. And eventually they learned to build 
houses or shelters or whatever um, in such a way that, and there was no early warning system. They had moments of notice. And if you were caught out in the open and didn't have a plan, it probably did not go well for you. And, no. and here we are talking about this great, you know, leap of human technology and ingenuity and distance and time and space, and yet we're still basically the same thing. How do I build my sod house out on the middle of the Martian prairie where I can get to shelter when the solar twister shows up? Yep. It's interesting. Yep. That's exactly right. Hey, I have a... Um, it, you were talking about L2 and these anchor points. I'm curious, when we... Like, we have international treaties around Antarctica. We have conversations. I don't know if we have treaties around the moon, but there is, you know, in real estate, the adage is always location, location, location. If we're putting the, this technology, at this geographic location, this real estate location, what's to prevent, uh, let's just call them competitors. I'll be gentle and just say competitors, a competitor nation from coming into that space, um, we have agreements, international agreements uh, managed by the UN and others for Antarctica and some of these other places. But I do know, as I've talked to other people, one of the reasons why we want to get to some of these celestial bodies is the first person or group of people to get to a spot, in theory, gets to control the spot. Is there a risk there? And I'm not trying to be inflammatory, but I'm I'm curious. If we go put our telescope up there or our technology there, somebody comes along. We've already picked on the French today, so I'm not going to pick on them. But somebody comes along and says, "Hey, I want to," or private industry or whatever. Hey, I I want this space, or I want to. I'm going to get right in front of you and kind of block your view. Is that a realistic that, fear? Well, well, first of all, I don't think that's a problem with L2. Right. Um. Partly because it's an enormous region of space. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's quite as big as the Earth itself, but I mean, it's, right. it's big enough that I don't think, it, in, at least in the short term, I don't see humanity as filling it up. So it's not the size of Times Square. As far as someone getting in the way, remember that a telescope looks at all different parts of the sky at all times. So unless right. you go out there and purposely put like a shroud around <laughs> the web, it's going to be okay. And anything right. that's like a few miles away, it doesn't matter how, it's still too small to right. obscure any region of the sky that you care about very much. Right. So I, I don't actually see that as a danger at L2. I do know there's a lot of discussion about that for the moon and in principle for Mars. Um, but I, I just, you know, it's hard. It's a little hard for me to see how that plays out. I, I think, uh, you know, let's say a competitor, to use your terminology, plants a flag on the moon and says the moon is you know mine and right. we go up there and say you know we don't really believe that we're going to land over here and we're going to do what we want i mean what right you know unless they've got weapons up there i it's just hard to see how anybody really enforces that now right. I, I i do i think there are people have had discussions internationally about what territorial claims on these bodies mean and i do know that there have been a lot of discussions about the need to be careful about what we put down on these bodies, lest we pollute them or lest we seed them right. with life from our own planet. And then we would be have a hard time doing any research to discover what whether there might have been early life on a planet like Mars or right. whether the, if there is life there, you know, how is it connected? Right. 
with, um, with our own uh, life. And so this uh, kind of planetary, um, uh, what do they call it, quarantine, they're worried, you know, they want to be very careful about that. Uh, and so people talk about that. I don't, I, I'm not sure that there are any actual international agreements on what to do, though. I know there, I know there's been a lot of discussion. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But as it relates to science of astronomy, and I know we're getting close to time, so I'm just curious if maybe we could end up here or if there's <clears throat> anything else you want to contribute that we haven't talked about today. Like I've got 50 notes of things to talk about next time. There's so, there's so much cool stuff. We haven't even dove into the consequences of seeing the beginning of time and space. But just from a practical perspective for this conversation, um, I'm a I'm a fan of the idea of Elon Musk in in terms of innovation and not the controversial things. Um, although I was impressed that he built uh, what were they flamethrowers or something that thought that was pretty funny. But just as we as we try to help human beings communicate better, one of the things that Elon and many other organizations are talking about are building these constellations. How, whether it's Starlink, which he's proposing, or these other things. Um, and I don't know enough about um, how low Earth orbit constellations, not a satellite or two, but thousands upon thousands across vast geographic areas. I see the positive potential of extending connectivity. Many, many parts of the United States don't even have 4G, much less 5G. I mean, they're 2G, 3G. It's just difficult to get to them. And so one of the ways that they believe that this can help or in remote islands or whatever is are these constellations. How does that, when we've talked about telescopes in space primarily, but isn't it, isn't it true that most of our, or a significant portion anyway, of our deep space observation still comes from terrestrial Earth? And, and would these constellations, is there a concern there that that could impact um, how we observe things from the planet out? Yeah, yes, there is a concern. And, um, you know, not very long ago in cosmic time, like a couple of centuries ago, uh, astronomers or, you know, the amateurs, the scientists who <clears throat> wanted to study the sky built their telescopes in convenient places, like in the middle of cities. Right. And the cities weren't very bright. There was no, you know, no electricity, so there were campfires, but it wasn't that uh, bad. But then, you know, eventually as cities were built, it became not convenient for astronomers to work in the middle of a city. And so the observatories migrated out. First, they went to slightly distant regions. You know, Yerkes Observatory in Wisconsin is down near Lake Geneva, which is not close to Milwaukee or Madison or any other very large city, but it's still, it's not that great. Mm -hmm. um, Palomar in California is uh, Southern California, Mount Wilson, mm -hmm. actually. It's a great site in the, uh, the turn of the you know, 20th century uh, before Los Angeles became the electrified light source that it is now. Right. And then, and now we put our telescopes in Hawaii and Chile. And as I mentioned, Southern Texas is a pretty dark site and other things like that. Mm. Um, what will happen to those observatories if we have a lot of low flying spacecraft that, that glint and otherwise disturb observations? Well, I think I think it will be a problem. Um, I don't think I'm not sure in the short term it's enough of a problem that we're going to then say okay we've got to put all our telescopes in space to get right. you know, above all of that. Right. Um, partly because I think that we'll use technology to overcome some of it. I mean, if you're taking a picture and something flies through it, you know, you'll either discard it and take another one, or you'll 
edit the picture just as your engineer will edit this podcast and take out the glaring flaws mm-hmm. and still be able to use a lot of the data. And I think that'll be probably a lot less expensive and more convenient than, than moving the telescopes. But, but, but it is a problem. I will say that there's a, there's a flip side to that though. Um, I'm involved in a project right now. Uh, PI is my, um, my uh, colleague, uh, Professor uh, Jessica Liu, and we have a student and uh, my department chair, Josh Bloom, Professor Bloom is also on this project. And what we're interested in is actually a constellation of telescopes. And it's, it's in some sense similar to the stuff that Elon Musk is doing. We are envisioning a constellation of uh, a few hundred telescopes, small telescopes. I mean, they're, you know, they would be sort of right. the size of a bread box. I know nobody has bread right. boxes anymore, right. but I'm, I'm old enough to remember the yeah. bread box, right? So, you know, they'd be small telescopes. Well, even with a small, uh, with a small telescope going into space, you can do amazing things. And if we had hundreds of these things, we could be looking at the entire sky 24 seven. That is nothing that goes bump in the night, so right. to speak would escape our observation because we'd have at least one satellite looking at one part, every part of the sky at all times. And so we actually think this could be a real boon for astronomy. And, and also, if you make a lot of little things, it generally should, you should achieve economies of scale so that it's a lot cheaper than making like one big thing. So the web costs 10 billion. But if you look at a company like Planet, it used to be called Planet Labs, they, they have a constellation of small satellites to map the earth. And they're little satellites, they're bread box size, right. CubeSats. Yeah, Cube and they have, I think, over 200 satellites now in orbit. And they're looking down and they cover the entire Earth every day. They have a yeah. new picture of the whole Earth from these little satellites. And they've shown that uh, they, they couldn't do that if their 100th satellite costs just as much to build as the first one. So they've achieved some real economies. And we were hoping that we could do the same thing for astronomy. And that reduces the risk a great deal. So I, I think what, what Musk and others are doing, Musk, of course, he, he's a, he has a name for this, but I think, uh, I think Amazon is doing this. I, I think Facebook is doing the same thing. There are a number of, of companies that realize that having you know, constellations of satellites are important to their business because their business depends on connecting people to the internet. And the most people they can connect are still not connected. They're in remote regions of the world where right. they don't have cables going in. So, so there are a lot of companies doing this, and I, I think people slowly are realizing that uh, large numbers of these things are very innovative for their own reasons. Are they also a problem for astronomy? You know, maybe. I mean, certainly in the short run, we do worry about that. We have the same problem with radio astronomy, all of the radio noise that eventually came from television broadcasting. Radio broadcasting is a problem for making radio observations of the sky. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, as, as we've evolved as sciences, we'll, we'll cope. We'll figure it out. Let me ask you this one last question, if you don't mind, and we'll wrap it up here. Um, so don't mess it up, Derek. I don't know if Derek can fix it, but hopefully he, that's my producer. Well, there's a lot of pressure, you know. <laughs> I'm here. no longer a young man. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's not scripted, but I'm curious. So we, we get to talk to a lot of people on this podcast. One of the more interesting was a guy named Martin Ford, who um, is an engineer, and he wrote two books of note at least to me, one is Rise of the Robots, the other is Rule of the Robots. And he talks about the impact of AI and robotics, not so much machine learning, it's a different kind of situation, but on, I suppose it's it's related, on future work. And and he makes a correlation between, the while, while economists and others are very optimistic, look, this is how we disrupted agriculture, here's how we 
uh, disrupted with the Industrial Revolution for information age and all these other things. And he would argue, yeah, but there's a difference with automation mechanization in the in the future. And so when we talk to people, whether they're academics or of industry, depending, well, I like to ask, depending upon what industry they're in, as you look at the future, if I'm a radiologist, I'm a little concerned that tools are coming along to look at all these millions of images and certainly disrupt my industry, if not displace some of us. As an astronomist and and been in this field for so long, obviously not just well-educated, but just passionate about it. If you're talking to somebody that is a young astronomer considering this field of study, are you super excited? Like your best days are ahead of you. These tools are going to so open up the universe and the things that we can observe and come along inside and enhance us? Or are you more um, guarded than that? How, how would you describe it to somebody that's, you know, what no, the days no, ahead I, of no, you I'm are? Very much, no, I'm very much in the formal camp. I, okay. I do. I think the opportunities are, are great. I think they will expand. Uh, it What it means is that the young astronomers have to le- learn a different skill set than I did. I got my PhD in, let's see, 1978. Mm. So my skill set, the things that I needed to do to do research then is a skill set that has largely been, uh, I wouldn't say it's forgotten, but the people who could do the things I do are now amateur astronomers for the most part. They're not professionals. So I'll just give you an example. I mean, part of my thesis work was using the 200-inch telescope at Mount Palomar, the five-meter Mount Palomar telescope. Uh, which at the time was the largest telescope in the world. Um, I made the instrumentation for my thesis. I mean, this was in our group. A lot of us made our own. So I made the instrumentation for my thesis, bolted it on the telescope. But to make observations, there was no way to keep the telescope pointed or even find out where you were. You had to actually have an astronomer looking in an eyepiece and then using like photographs from finding what we call finding charts of star fields from other telescopes to figure out where you were and then actively guide the telescope with old style electrical paddles so that it didn't drift while you were taking data. And that was normally, and for my thesis, it was normally me. And we, you know, they had a whole chair underneath the bottom of the telescope is a huge telescope. And, And you'd sit in this chair and, you know, you'd rotate and as the telescope went to different things, part of the art was getting the chair where you could still get to the eyepiece. It got cold at night. We wore, uh, we had a, uh, the old discarded uh, flight suits from World War II fighter pilots. Right. And they, it was so cold in those cockpits, they had electric suits that they plugged in. We had this, we got these old suits, we plugged them in, we'd turn them up, right. all of that stuff. So I had skills of both putting the, you know, making the instrumentation, also then sort of using it in real time, which completely, I, I mean, most, a lot of our students, I'm not even sure if they ever go to telescopes anymore. You can observe from the, the Keck telescope, which is on the summit of Hawaii. There are actually two of them. Uh, if our, our students want to make observations, they don't go to Hawaii, uh, which I used to do for a living. They go down into a room in Campbell Hall on Berkeley where they have a complete console and it's all completely remote. And there are what you would call robots that will automatically make these adjustments. There are cameras that look at the sky and software that automatically keeps the telescope on target. You don't have to worry about that. There are computers that take the data. You don't have to worry about that. In the end, you have to go and do the uh, scientific analysis. 
And, you know, that's a step forward because our, our use of these telescopes is much more efficient. I mean, I, I thought I was a pretty good observer in the day, mm -hmm. but I wasn't nearly as efficient as a, as a well-programmed computer with a very sensitive camera would have been. So, so it's improved, you know, the, it's improved the use of our, our, our stuff. And, and this is especially true in space. You know, all space telescopes, all spacecraft remote observers are fundamentally robots with this little bit of onboard intelligence and a lot of communication. And uh, that's just opened up the things that we can do. Hubble, James Webb, all of that has made, made it much more possible. So the, the, the nature of the science has changed a little bit and, and our students um, don't really need to know the kinds of things that I was good at 50 years ago or four years ago. And, uh, but they do need to know some other things that uh, I didn't have to worry about as much. Uh, I used to program computers, but at a very basic level, I could write assembler code. Some engineers still know what that means, okay? <laughs> For the early machines, because, you know, it was all crude and we didn't have software and we're sort of taking data. Now they have very sophisticated programs and they have to figure out if they're using these programs, are they getting the right answer? And it's a different skill set. So they're learning that. And, and I don't think that computers or machines are going to replace them. I, I actually think the same is true of, of radiologists. I think uh, if you go to a dentist, for example, with a modern modern equipment, that dentist no longer takes x-rays on film and then tries to figure out. That dentist will take an x-ray with a little, a little gun and a CCD, a charge couple device sensor, and display it on the computer in real time. And it has an enormous number of advantages for the dentist. Number one, the amount of radiation you need to take a picture is, is a, about a 1% of what you used to need for film because the detectors are so much better. Number two, he's got the picture in there. If he wants to enhance it, he can play games to, to or, or she can play games to make, you know, bring out the features they wanna see. See if you need a root canal, see if you have a cavity, see if you've got some problem here. So, so that's just been an enormous boon and it has not replaced dentists at all. It's just made them more accurate, more sure of their diagnoses, more better to give you care. And I think the same thing's going to be true in science. I think it's just an evolution of the skills that our students will need to learn so that they can then get into the higher level of thought of what it all means. Well, Steve, we've covered a lot of ground. I have so many other things I want to talk to you about. So I'm going to see if I can persuade you another time to come on. Another time. Another, another time. time and have a great conversation with us. Thank you very much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. David, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, Please like, share, subscribe, and comment. We'll see you next time, everybody, on the QTS Experience. Take care.